0: I trust by now you're getting familiar with finding Zechariah in your Bibles. But if you're new with us or visiting, it is near the back of the Old Testament. It's the second last book. And we're in about the middle of it right now. This morning we will be looking at Zechariah chapter 8. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And that is because the word of the Lord is completely without error. Zechariah chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight? declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give its dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing." Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth And the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts, I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would encourage us by your word, that you would make us attentive to your promises, that you would show us that all of your promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Help us, O Lord, to trust you, We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is a hard thing not to be afraid. When fear comes upon us, it is not easy to dispel. Some of you may remember the days, some of you may still be living in the days of being so young and it's dark and it's time to go to bed and you're afraid of the dark. And a simple word of encouragement, there's nothing to be afraid of, really just won't cut it. I have to tell you the honest truth you could speak to me for hours on end and you will not get me to ride on a high roller coaster. I am afraid. Mere words will not change that. But at the same time, we have to understand that we cannot live lives that are driven by fear. Because as fear drives our lives, we become more and more depressed, more and more inward focused, more and more lost. And that's why the Lord is speaking to us today in Zechariah chapter 8. You may recall that Zechariah 7 and 8 are a kind of a hinge in the book of Zechariah. Before it are the series of night visions that Zechariah received, visions of encouragement that he brought to the people. In chapter 9 and following, we will see a vivid picture of the coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ, to encourage us to persevere on. But here... There's something in the middle. And there is a statement here in chapter 8 that helps us to deal with our fears as we understand who the Lord is. We can hear the Lord speak to us those comforting words. Fear not. Did you know that only the God of the Bible... Only the true and living God speaks the words, fear not. In all of the false religions throughout all of the world, there is a sense in which fear is good for the idols. It is good for the false religions. It is the way that people are kept under a thumb. But God himself speaks words of comfort, telling us not to be afraid so that he might Continue to have a relationship with us and that we might grow in our knowledge and love for the Lord our God. This morning in chapter 8, we see three reasons why we should not be afraid. The first is because the Lord is sovereign. The second is because the Lord strengthens His people. And the third is because the Lord transforms. The Lord is sovereign, He strengthens His people, and He transforms. Let's begin then by looking at what it means to say that the Lord is sovereign. Now, sovereign is just a 25 to 50 cent word that means in control. The Lord is in control. Now, you have to understand... The context in which God is speaking right now. You remember that there was a delegation that came from Bethel wanting to know whether or not they needed to keep certain fasts. And it seems to me that the delegation probably came and they wanted a simple answer, yes or no. But they made a mistake. They asked a prophet, they asked a preacher a question. And instead of yes or no, they got a two-part sermon. The first part of that sermon was chapter 7, in which they were called to repent, to not seek externalities, but to focus upon the Lord. And now in chapter 8, we have the second part of this sermon, and it is a call to trust in the Lord. You see, they had come wondering if they had done enough in fasting. And the Lord realized this, and he answered, cutting them to the quick. He said, you're not fasting for me, you're fasting for yourselves. You want to know if you need to do more in order to earn my blessing. And I think this should make us think of a question for our own lives. What does it mean if we are trying to work to earn God's grace? I don't mean just that it's bad, biblically speaking. I mean, what are the theological assumptions that we have that allow us to think we can work to earn God's grace? I think there are at least two that are very relevant to our text this morning. First, if we are trying to work to earn God's grace, we think God is not willing to bless us. God needs to be bribed to bless us. He needs to get some. He needs something of value from us before He will release something of value to us. You see, when we think we need to work to earn God's grace, it says something about how we believe God is in His character. There's a second overarching principle, I think. When we try and work for God's grace, we do not think God is able to bless us. That God is somehow restricted. That He is not able to bless us unless we do our part. We need to go at least part of the way so God can finish up the job. And the problem with this is, it is a complete denial of who God is. That he is indeed the sovereign one who is in control. And the Lord is now going to set the record straight for the Israelites and for Zechariah and for you and for me. And he's going to set the record straight that he is sovereign because he is in control. And he does it, I think, in a way that we can't miss. As I was reading the text earlier, something should have struck you. A refrain that you heard over and over and over again. It was the phrase, the Lord of hosts. Now, in case you don't know how often it appears, don't worry, I was keeping score for you. It's ten times in this short chapter. Almost once for every two verses. It occurs in verse 2 and 4 and 6 and 7 and 9 and 11 and 14 and 19 and 20 and 23. Over and over and over again, we hear the Lord being referred to as the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that mean? What is a host? is just an old-fashioned way of saying an army. You see, the Lord of hosts is meant to draw an image in our minds of a powerful God who is a warrior, who cannot be stopped. He has armies at His command. The same image is brought about in other ways by other translations. Sometimes this phrase is translated, the Lord Almighty. One translation says, Says the Lord who rules over all. But you get the picture, don't you? God is emphasizing this. He's making it so you can't miss it. He is the one who is powerful and who is in control. He is reminding us of His power. But He's also letting us know that His power is present and available. Because you see, when we think of power or ability, it doesn't really help us to think about it in the abstract or in the theoretical, right? How many times have you had a task before you that you had to accomplish and there was someone perhaps in your family or a neighbor or a friend that you knew had ability to do this task? But they felt it was their right and job to kind of stand on the sidelines and to occasionally lob pot shots at you. Oh, that'll never work. I wouldn't do that if I were you. After a little bit of time, you look at them and you say, Hey, can I get a little help over here? This isn't helping with you just standing off to the side. I actually need you to be involved and to help. You see, God is the one who is involved who is available, and who helps. The Lord is not just powerful, He is powerful on the side of His people. He makes this very clear in verse 2. The Lord says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Now, when we in our modern context hear the word jealous, we tend to think, ...of crazy husbands or wives... ...who are irrationally untrusting of their spouse. That's what we think of jealousy. It's even referred to as a monster. But that's not what the Bible means when it's speaking of jealousy. Jealousy in the Bible actually has the same root as zeal or zealous. What God is saying is that He is caring for His people... That he will vindicate them. That he is eager to protect them and to be on their side. We might even translate this last part, I am jealous for her with great wrath, as speaking about the defense that God will bring for his people. Something like, my rage will fall on those who hurt her. And isn't this what we need? Don't we need to know that God is not only in control in some vague way, but that God is on our side? That He cares for us? That He is working out things for our good, even if we are not able to see it at this moment? You know, without this critical, biblical understanding, when someone says to you, as you are faced with a problem, or a sadness or a worry. Oh, just leave that to God. That really means nothing. I'm worrying about it for a reason. I'm not just gonna forget about it and hope God takes care of it. But when we have this biblical understanding that God is sovereign and that God is in control, we can leave it to the Lord. Because we know not only is He able, but He cares. You see, that's what the Lord is doing here for the people of Israel. He is letting them know that He is in control. And He is also sovereign, secondly, because He brings great promises to them. You see, it's not just about the power that God has, but it's the power that He has for us and on our behalf. You have to combine this Element of power with a zeal or an encouraging action on behalf of His people. An eagerness to act on their behalf. And I don't think there's any better picture of this that we could have than the cross of Jesus Christ. For there, God's zealousness and jealousness for His people for being on their side, for seeking to build them up and to change them, meets the power of the work of Jesus. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the power of God solving the eternal problem of His people. You see, God promises to renew and redeem. And He does this in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Zechariah, he gives us a leading picture of what will happen upon the cross. There's a promise of renewal that he gives. He says that Jerusalem will be renewed. Now remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed. And that was a sign of the judgment of God. And the exiles are now back, and they are wondering if they will succeed. You'll recall the temple is about half built, and that's encouraging after a fashion, but you could just imagine there's still a lot of work to be done. And they look at this half-built structure and they say, will we ever get this done? There's a lot of hard work ahead of us. And in this chapter, it is as if God looks at them and he says, yes, you will. He says, I will dwell among you. And my mountain shall be called my holy mount. It's as if God is saying to them, you will finish the temple. Jerusalem will be restored and I will be among you. That is my promise that you will succeed. It is a promise that I will be with you. And Jerusalem will be called, Zechariah says, the faithful city. A true and faithful city. You know, it is an encouragement to us to know what will happen. I don't know if you have ever done this. I've taken to doing this recently. If I'm watching a film, especially an action film with many characters, and I wonder what's going to happen, I become a little bit agitated or nervous, wondering who will make it through to the end. And occasionally, I'm, I take out my phone. And I flip myself to Wikipedia. And I scan through the plot of the film. So that I know what's going to happen. Will the hero survive? Will he marry the girl in the end? And you see, I'm not as worried about losing the surprise as I am about just getting settled into watching the movie. The the, the nervousness will leave me. Because I know the end. Right? There's nothing to worry about now. In reality, that's the way your life is. You know the end. God has told you. When He tells you what He will accomplish, His promise is before you, then that strips away the fear. It cannot exist anymore because we know the end. Nothing is going to pop out and surprise us. We already know what is going to happen. And God promises Great peace and prosperity for his people in Jerusalem. He says, there will be old people who are so old they need a stick to stand up and walk. And there will be young people running in the streets playing. Now, that may not immediately seem to you to be a great promise, but I ask you, have you ever seen footage of cities during a war? The Balkans in the 90s. Syria today. Do you know what you don't see? You don't see old people walking around, you don't see children playing in the streets. It's too dangerous. It's not safe for them. You see what God is saying is this city that has been destroyed will be established and I will dwell with my people and I will bring you peace and prosperity. True peace and prosperity that will allow you to rejoice. The most vulnerable in society will be taken care of by me the Lord says. And then he promises to return. He promises to return His people to their land. He will unite them. He will bring them, He says, from the east and from the west. He will reverse the effects of the curse on the people of God. And He will gather them together. And that just seems too good to be true. He says, does this seem to be marvelous in your sight? Should it also be marvelous in mine? You see, this promise of God seems even beyond what we can imagine. That all of the effects of the curse can be stamped out. That He could bring His people back and restore them. But you see, God speaks that word of comfort to you today. If you're living in what you think is a shattered family. If you think your marriage is strained beyond the breaking point. If you think you cannot possibly climb the financial hill before you. If you wonder how you can possibly repent of the sinful lifestyle that you have fallen into. The Lord speaks to you and he says, this is not difficult for me. You remember the scripture verse that says, nothing is impossible with God. Zechariah actually takes it a step further. He says nothing is difficult for God. It is not a marvelous thing in his eyes. It is what he does. It is a part of who God is. And he seals these promises by the nature of who he is. Notice the most important thing about these promises we see in verse 8. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. This is the language of covenant renewal. God is drawing His people to Himself. He is the one who is active. He will not leave them nor forsake them. This is the promise that God has given to you today in Jesus Christ. Paul says almost exactly the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That means that God is sovereign. He's in control. And He is for His people. The second reason we have not to be afraid is that the Lord tells us that He is strengthening His people. And the first way He does this is with a reminder of the past. He tells them that he is here now to strengthen them. In verse 9, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the days that the foundation were laid. He says, You were around when things were tough. You saw when nothing was going forward. You saw when no man had a wage. No beast had a wage. But now I am here among you. You see, there is a very famous verse that makes it on the walls of almost every Christian house at some point. It's cross-stitched or written or calligraphied. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The problem is, I think often we have come to understand that verse to mean I can do anything I set my mind to because Jesus. So if I set my mind to something, I'll accomplish it. So therefore, I'm going to set my mind to this. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. He's not saying... I want to be able to accomplish this task, and I will, because Jesus. I can fix my problems because Jesus. No, Jesus is not a magic mantra in this sense. What it really means is that we are to do all things that God has given us to do. That God will equip us to do His will. And so therefore the Lord says, remember what it was like when you were kicking against the goats. Remember what it was like when you were abandoning me. Remember what it was like in your time of chastisement and struggle. Nothing you did succeeded. You weren't focused on the Lord. When they first began rebuilding the temple, they got nowhere. They did less work in 20 years than they've done in the last two. Why? God tells us in the prophet Haggai. He says, because you were too worried about your own houses and your own lives and your own fortunes. And I was an afterthought. And so you didn't succeed at all because I was not with you. But now I am with you. And because of that, you will succeed. You will be safe Because I have a purpose for you, God says. God says, I want you to see my faithfulness. I want you to be a testimony to the nations. Right now, God is showing his salvation through the people of Israel. He says, don't be afraid. Not because the circumstances now are better. You see, that's the trap for us we think whether we should be afraid or not depends on how bad things are. God says you've got it all wrong. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. Better to have bad circumstances and God be with you than good circumstances and God be absent. Then you should be really afraid. Because if things are going well and God is not with you, And you think you have it all together, and you don't need the Lord, and you don't need His Word, and you don't need His redemption, then you are set up for a majestic fall. It is the pride that goes before the fall. The second way that the Lord equips and strengthens His people is with a call, He calls His people to serve. Look with me if you would at verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. There is another challenge that comes to us. We want to emphasize the grace of God. But the problem is that sometimes the way we look at the grace of God makes us leery or wary or afraid of service. We wonder if it's wrong for us to serve the Lord. We wonder if it's wrong for us to want God's blessing upon us. As if somehow we have to be completely altruistic in our relationship with God or else we're doing something wrong. Almost as if I should not really want to go to heaven and live with the Lord for all eternity because that sort of taints my faith in God. But the Bible commands us to seek the rewards that God gives to us. The Bible puts forward before us the rewards that He has prepared for us to help us and to strengthen our faith. You know, it's like the way children obey. Children obey from a mixture of motives. I've got a secret for those of you that are new parents. Children don't obey only because... They love you. That's part of it. But they also obey because they want to please you. And they also obey because they want the reward. And we can't separate out those strings. They they all come in together. It's as if we went up to a tapestry and tried to pull a thread, hoping to resolve the problem, and all we do is make a big hole. You see, the Bible puts before us these rewards to encourage us to follow the Lord. It is a consequence of our trust in Christ. God calls us to serve Him so that we know Him better. But then, of course, there's an obvious question. How can I serve God? How can I give to God? You know, if it's difficult at Christmas or birthday to give a gift to someone who has everything, how do I give to He who is everything? Can I increase God's glory? Can I increase the stretch of His arm or His power? No. So how can I serve God? The Lord tells us here in Zechariah 8, we serve the Lord... By serving others. How we treat others is the way in which we serve the Lord. And look at what he says. Speak the truth. Be fair and just. Don't nourish hatred in your heart. These things that we do serve the Lord. The Lord has placed them in our path that we might be a benefit to others around us. It is what God calls us to do. And then when we seek God's blessing, not as an end in itself, but we seek God's blessing as a reminder to us that we are actually seeking God. We know that He is the only one that can provide the blessing. That He is the one who has prepared the way for us. The Lord strengthens us with this call to service. Thirdly and finally, we are told not to be afraid because the Lord transforms. We see this here in verse 19 and following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Do you remember the original question that the folks from Bethel asked? They said, do we still need to keep the fast of the fifth month? Look at how God answers. He doesn't just answer about that one fast. He says, I know about all these fasts, these four fasts that you have. You see, Bethel's vision was very small. All they wanted to do was to stop this one fast and to get life back to normal. But God says, I'm not just trying to get you back to normal. He says, I'm ready to treat all of these fasts and I'm not just telling you to stop them. You see, often that's how we live. We dream small dreams. We think it would be wondrous if one person came to know the Lord in our church. If one church was planted. If one missionary was encouraged. And what God is saying here is, your dream is too small. I am the Lord. I transform all creation. And he says, I'm not just going to stop one feast. I'm not even just going to stop four feasts, four fasts, excuse me. I'm going to take these four fasts and I'm going to turn them into feasts. A time of sadness will become a time of joy. A time of ashes will be a time of beauty. I'm going to turn everything around. That is a picture of what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just take the bad out of your life. You're looking too small if you think that Jesus died upon the cross just simply to rid you of bad habits you don't enjoy. The gospel changes everything. It brings great joy and blessing in its wake. You see, now because of the work of Jesus, there is feasting where there was once lack. One author puts it this way, I think, very well. God comes to change despair for delight, suffering for singing, poverty for plenty, ruin for restoration abandonment for His abiding presence. You see, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is that He is transforming everything in our lives, bringing us joy. So we must be a people of joy. Now, don't hear the pastor saying that if you are a Christian, you will never have a sorrow and you will never cry a tear. That is not what Zechariah is saying here. What God is saying through Zechariah is, in and in spite of our sorrows and our tears, we can have joy because we know there is an answer for these things. We know that God is with us and that He has brought us a solution. And this joy lights a fire within us to live for God. Brothers and sisters, the sooner you find this joy, the more blessed you will be by God. God wants you to rejoice in His work in the gospel. Lastly, the Lord shows His transformation by describing how the peoples will come. And yes, that's meant to be plural, There are so many, there are more than one people who come. Look at how it's described in verse 20. People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. They'll go from one city to the other saying, Come on, let's go, I'm going. Zechariah says, Ten will grab the cloak of one to say, Take me, take me to see God. Now you have to imagine this scene. Do you remember in the days of Exodus why it was said that God chose the Israelites? It was because they were the smallest of all the people, remember? The most insignificant. That was in Exodus when there were hundreds of thousands of them. Now only a small portion have returned. They're even smaller Than they were before. And they are the laughing stock of all the world. They don't have a proper city. They don't have a proper place to worship. They've been bounced around empire and empire. And yet God promises them this great influx of people. Why are the people coming? It's not because of the great temple that isn't there. It's not because of the powerful army that doesn't exist. It's not because of the great wisdom of the people of God that they don't have. The only reason the peoples are coming is because of God. You know, that's true in Houston in 2016 too. People come not because of how great we are, or because of how much we have it together, or because of how excellent we are at the things we do, people will come if they know that God is present and they want to see God. They will say to us, we have heard God is with you. Show us, take us to God. And there is a reality in which this begins to come about even in the days of the New Testament. The Greeks will come to Jerusalem. The Romans will come to Jerusalem. At the day of Pentecost, people from nation upon nation upon nation will come seeking the Lord. And God gives us a great encouragement of success. You saw that God says there will be ten. Ten men from the nations will take hold of the robe of one Jew. Now put that in perspective. All of the statistical studies say that for each new convert who comes to know Christ in a church, there are roughly 30 to 40 members that are needed to bring that about. I don't mean that 30 people need to talk to someone. I mean, if you take a congregation up and divide it, on average, in the best of situations, there are 30 to 40 members for every new convert. Here the Lord says, there are going to be 10 seeking me for every one of my people. Now look around with you. Just imagine... What Katie would be like if for every one of you there were ten new followers of Jesus. Change our church, that would change Houston. If ten new followers of Christ were found for everyone who trusted the Lord and who worshipped Him and who read His word. If the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, increased tenfold, what would be impossible to be done in this city, in this nation, in this world? Nothing. Because of the power of God. And you see, this is a reminder from God that this is our mission. Our mission is to lead others to Christ. We must have a message. Who God is, what He has done. But we must also have a life that shows the difference the message makes. The reason they're grabbing the robe of this Jew is because they can see He's different. He's not like them. God is among you. What is going on? Take us to this God. And that is something that you can do today, beloved. You don't need to memorize 100 Bible verses to do this. You don't need to get a seminary degree to do this. You don't need to go out on the mission field to do this. All you need to do is today to have a commitment to honoring the Lord and being thankful for what He does and doing that in a public way. And people will notice. And people will be changed. Not because you're the best at it, but because God has promised to do that. That's His promise to us. In conclusion... There is no reason for you here today to be afraid. Why? Because God is in control. Because God is strengthening you day by day. And because God is transforming you and all of His creation to worship and honor Him. This is what the Lord speaks to us. We need not fear. We are in the hands of the one who is all-powerful and who is on our side and who seeks our good and life. Trust the Lord today. Follow after Him. Heed His word. All of His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought to us your word. That we can know, O Lord, that you are sovereign and in control. And we ask, O Lord, that you would remind us that there is no one like you. That you alone have the words of life. And that as you transform our lives, that we would live lives to your glory that others around us would see, and that they would say, come with me, I myself am going. Where is your God? Give us words of grace, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.